Today's scripture is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. May God help us to hear his word. Uh, not sure if uh, we are. Oh, there we are. Great. Well, thanks, Hewlett, for reading scripture for us. And uh, let me also just uh, add my appreciation to the fathers and the grandfathers of GBC today as we celebrate Father's Day uh, for your love, for your discipline, and for your godly examples. A blessed Father's Day to all. Uh, and if you haven't already hugged your dad and prayed for him, it's a good day to do that. Uh, so, dads, make yourselves available to be hugged and prayed for. Uh, it can also be a painful day for some of us who have lost our fathers or struggled with difficult relationships. So let's also remember uh, those folks with compassion today. Let's go to God in prayer as we prepare to hear His Word. Heavenly Father, all families of the earth take their name from You and receive from You fatherly provision. We thank You today for the gift of fathers and grandfathers who taught us Christ and showed us how to trust Him. We thank You for their work in providing and protecting and ask that You grow the fathers, especially of our church, in Christ. Give them joyful faith, godly character and wisdom in every difficult situation. And we pray also for those who grieve 
over their fathers and you know their situations and their hurt. And we pray that you would help them to trust their Father in heaven who never disappoints and in wisdom knows how to help us heal. Lord, speak your word to us today. Be our teacher, Holy Spirit, and help us see our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My assigned text this uh, day is Genesis 2, and uh, the message is entitled, Creation Revisited. And if you start a Bible reading plan in January, you have a 99% chance of getting to chapter 2. You shouldn't have been derailed yet because we haven't reached the genealogies. And it's a good thing to revisit creation because we often lose sight of God's design for our lives. Of course, with uh, phase two heightened alert, some may argue we've lost sight of all life beyond the walls of our houses, whether you're working from home or eating from home or schooling from home. But in Genesis, we see these big questions asked in the text. What did God design our lives for and especially work? Studies show that Singaporean workers are some of the most hardworking workers in the world. They struggle with overwork, work-life balance, and apparently are also the most vacation-deprived workers in the world. You might want to Google that, but maybe don't. Well, a few retirees have also shared that in retirement in Singapore, they struggle with what to do when work ends and the need to continue working. So I'm very thankful to Pastor Eugene for setting us on this sermon series on foundations where we can look at these big questions of life. And if we don't get our answers from the living God and His Word, we will look for them in the world, in the professional culture, or we will just continue acting out of habit, good or bad. So three sections of our text today will address creation revisited. We'll look at the characters, the stage, and the work. We pick up from Pastor Oliver's sermon last week where we read about the first character of the Bible, God. Uh, the Hebrew word Elohim means creator. Elohim finished the work of creating the heavens and the earth. He is unlike the gods of the nations. He speaks the world out of nothing into being. His work is orderly and purposeful. He gives form to the formless and he fills up the void in six days. He makes man and woman as his image bearers, representatives to all creation, saw that his work was very good, blessed it and rested on the seventh day and made it holy. That's the summary of the sermon last week. But look at the first verse of our text in chapter 2 verse 4 and we'll see that Moses revisits the subject of creation again in a complementary way. Look at that verse. These are, present tense, the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, referring to Genesis 1, verse 1, and then he zooms in, in the day. You see the zooming? That the Lord God, and L-O-R-D is there in all caps, He makes the earth and heavens, which is a mirror image flip of the phrase heavens and the earth. So this first verse of our text today and the first verse of Genesis 1 verse 1 are mutually complementary. They are interlocking almost. 
Uh, they enrich one another, they clarify one another. And let's look at how the name of God uh, works that way. L-O-R-D, all caps, is a special covenantal name of God revealed to Moses. Elder John uh, mentioned to this, this to us a few weeks ago, and he pointed out that the word Yahweh, which means I am that I am, Exodus 3, was too holy for the Hebrews to write or to say. So they replaced that word with the word Adonai, which means L-O-R-D, Lord. And that's what you see in your Bible. But the Bible editors want you to know that that word does not actually mean Lord. It actually is Yahweh, the personal name of God. So it's in all caps. So instead of the Elohim God of Genesis 1 verse 1, Moses now says it is Yahweh Elohim who has his personal name there for us. So Genesis 2 works almost as if now we are going in a close-up, the close-up work of creation, uh, like in a movie. Whereas God speaks and everything falls in place, like the commands of a royal king of heaven in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 shows Yahweh Elohim working in the ground like a skilled worker. He forms the dust man, he breathes life, plants a garden, takes and places his handiwork in the garden. And we'll come back to this later, but notice that Moses is speaking to a nation of farmers and slaves, and he tells them that their God is a worker God. Besides giving us more theology, verse 4 of chapter 2, this little poem also gives us some insight into the structure of Genesis, how we should read the whole book. Uh, the phrase, these are the generations of, occurs 10 times in the book of Genesis. It's almost like we have headings of sections. And the word generations here, Toledot, is the basis for the name Genesis. Genesis, generations, Toledot. The 10 Toledot sections of the book move from cosmic creation with the families of Adam, and then down to the families of Noah and Abraham. And the story zooms in to see what God is doing in the lives of the patriarchs and their families. So these are the ten patriarchs, or rather the ten Toledots that we have in Genesis. And if you want to break up your text to study it, if you were studying the book, that's a good way to do it. The other character we get a fresh look at in Genesis 2 is the man of dust, uh, Moses writes that God formed him from the dust of the ground, which has to be the most realistic statement about our carbon-based flesh and blood, but it also is meant to humble us. Into that dust man, God breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And readers, you can almost see and feel God drawing up close, sending forth his life-giving spirit into that man. So again, Genesis 2 complements Genesis 1 with this paradox. We are in a sense both dust and divine, both for the earth yet with the breath of heaven in us. The Bible tells us that every breath we take, the breath you're breathing right now through your nostrils, first began with God breathing His spirit of life to give life to your mortal bodies. Because we are dust, 
the Bible will remind us that we need to be humble. Psalm 90 says that God returns us to dust at the end of our lives, that mankind is like grass which grows in the morning and fades at night. We live only 70 or 80 years, and in verse 12 of Psalm 90, the psalmist or Moses summarizes all the wisdom writings of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, and he says that regardless of suffering, work, wealth, or power, number your mortal days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And yet, God's own breath gives us life to be His image bearers. So Christians must always oppose and reject the objectifying of human beings, as in the cruelty of racism, or pornography, or in the sex trade. Never despise the worth that God has put in human beings. This applies, of course, to ourselves. No matter how we feel, no matter our self-esteem, the Bible tells us that our life, our human life is precious to God. Psalm 8 verse 5, God has made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And the Bible forbids murder of humans for this very reason. In Genesis 9 verses 5 and 6, murder of the image bearers is condemned. But what else does Genesis 2 say about the kind of world God placed man in? What is this stage that he has set for us? Well, we get the sense from verses 8 and 9 that the stage God had made was waiting for God to complete it with living creatures. There's no mention uh, there's no mention of the animals from the days of creation because this is a complementary account with its own focus uh, and there is no bush or small plant on this stage of creation, no life and no water cycle from falling rain, which means there's no operating features, no regular processes to sustain life except for this mysterious mist or spring that God uses to prepare the ground. And so the text creates anticipation by describing how this mist, almost like the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep, prepares the ground. But what is it waiting for? God has yet to appoint man to work the ground. Man, the worker, has not yet been made. And so verses 8 and 9 tell us about the one who works first. That's God. He is the gardener who plants a garden in Eden in the east. Eden in Hebrew means delight. The garden of Eden is the garden of delight. And for me, growing up with Bible stories in the church, I had never realized that Eden was not the whole of creation. But reading it carefully, Eden is a specific dwelling in creation, a garden that God had planted himself, a specially prepared habitation for men. And more than that, that habitation is furnished with features for life, flourishing fruitfulness, already made for men. The text says that the Lord God made to spring up every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
Every kind of fruit tree for sustenance, sweet, fleshy, fibrous and juicy, packed with nutrients for life, all in there. And so healthy and vibrant are Eden's trees that if you have time, read Ezekiel 31, in which God speaks to the richest and the strongest nations, Assyria and Egypt, and he says, you are the most beautiful trees and all the trees of Eden envy you. And then they grow proud because of how beautiful they are and God the gardener says, I'll bring you down for arrogance. But in Genesis 2 verse 9, the two trees that capture our attention in this beautiful garden are not Assyria and Egypt, but are named the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll come back to the second tree, but let's look first at the tree of life. Some speculate that this is the source of immortality, every kind of cure for diseases and viruses, and we don't really know what exactly it is, but here's what we do know. Multiple references to the tree of life in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is like the tree of life, Proverbs 3.18. The fruit of the righteous, Proverbs 11.30. A gentle tongue, Proverbs 15.4. So, the writer of Proverbs compares all these righteous and wise, life-giving behaviors to that of the beautiful tree of life. Most significantly, Revelation says that this tree of life is fruitful, it is found in the paradise of God, Revelation 2.7, and in the city of the king, that's where the tree is ultimately found, Revelation 22. The leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations, and gives them peace and enabling true reconciliation. Well, no wonder Proverbs 13.12 says, a, tr- a, a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It is utterly desirable and, uh, and, to be f- and to be sought after. And that's why it's such a surprise that the man and woman will spurn and reject this gift. And they will reject the life God lays out for them. Well, verses 10 to 14 of our text build on this garden picture to show the glory of this garden. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden and runs off into four rivers. Now, we know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are. I put it in that picture that you probably can't see on your TV, but they are known to us. And many have tried to locate the other two rivers, Pishon and Gihon. Uh, And of course, they've tried to locate Eden itself to to find where the river waters come from. Well, some theorize that it's from Mesopotamia, which is modern Iraq. Others, like Christopher Columbus, they looked elsewhere when they were sailing uh, down in South America and they thought that, oh, those have to be, well, he thought that has to be where Eden is. But friends, it's not really for us to speculate about the hidden things that God has not revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Pastor Eugene actually reminded us recently with respect to conspiracy theories to avoid such guessing games which turn us away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. When it comes to reading the Bible, the plain thing is the main thing. So what's the plain thing? The God who misted the ground irrigates his own garden 
with a life-giving river that has all these secondary channels. And the rivers that we can't identify are full of precious metals, good gold, bdellium, and onyx stone. So we know that the Garden of Eden is a blessed land. It's a precious land. The rivers that we do know, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they sustain what we now call the Fertile Crescent, which borders modern-day Iraq, Palestine, Israel, Egypt, and other countries. And some call this area the Cradle of Civilization, since life, according to archaeology, seems to have begun here. It's funny that we wait for archaeologists to dig and dig and dig to tell us what we already know from Scripture. Genesis 13.10 will later tell us that uh, Abraham's cousin Lot, when he's, when he's looking for where he will choose to dwell, he will look at the Jordan Valley and he will say that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So these four rivers, they just show us how well watered and life-sustaining God's garden is. The text also introduces a very important idea, what theologians call God's providence. The Belgic Catechism defines providence as how this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to His holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. God's mighty wisdom and power cares for and sustains creation. What God makes, He sustains. And He does so in the world around us today through providence. So the garden has this sustaining river that flows through it. And the rivers in the Bible are one of the most common metaphors for God's Holy Spirit. Look at Psalm 46, verse 4. The city of God is sustained by this river that gives its inhabitants joy. In Revelation 21, God's holy city also has a river of the water of life that runs through that city, flowing from God's throne, the throne of God and the Lamb. So in Eden, in God's garden, God sustains and keeps things living and growing, nourished by His river, which reminds us of His Spirit. Every tender plant clueless shrub, bountiful flower and fruit, God sustains. Does this picture of God's garden and His providential care, does it stir you? Or oh, it may sound silly a bit to think about it this way, but we live in concrete boxes stacked into the sky, most of us. And half the time we are looking out into other concrete boxes that look into other concrete boxes and actually, we would really benefit more from going out and looking for the echoes of Eden in our world. Uh, I have a friend who introduced me to a Japanese word called shinrin-yoku, which means forest bathing, uh, which recognizes it is good for the body and it's good for the soul to be in nature. Now, I don't know about shinrin-yoku. I'm, 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 I don't know enough about it. But I know that Eden depicts nature as where we enjoy fellowship with God, our Creator. I know the parks are packed. I know the green corridor is packed. I've also been there. But whenever or wherever you go, let your heart go to God in worship. 
Let that experience remind you to look for your Creator who makes all living things grow. Worship Him as you go out and as you see the world He has made. The world of work or of digital work or digital entertainment will conspire to hold our attention with these little light tablets that we stare at all day when the world around us is brimming with God's glory. Creation looks much better when we commune with the Creator. And so the hymn writer Wayne Robinson will write, Heaven above is deeper blue, and earth around is sweeter green. That which glows in every hue, every color, Christless eyes have never seen. Birds in song, His glories show, flowers with richer beauties shine, since I know, as now I know, I am His and He is mine. So the characters, the stage, and thirdly, the work of Eden. Verse 15, the man is placed in the garden deliberately for the purpose of work. Well, but before we define what it is, let's make some observations about how work is presented here. First, the work comes from within the purposes and will of God. God relocates man into the garden intentionally for the purpose of good work. Second, as the land beyond Eden is uncultured and barren before man arrives, man's work, as it suggests in verse 5, uh, man's work cooperates with the processes of providence. So we are to cooperate uh, as we till the soil, for instance, with how God provides rain. Third, the assignment to work takes place before the fall, so it cannot be the result of the fall or of sin. Before sin entered the world, man had a good, satisfying, productive job. Fourth, the work of God that he assigns to man is not something he can do alone. Now, I'm eating into the next preacher's assignment, but later on in the next text, God is going to say that it is not good that the man should be alone and that he needs a helper because of the work. Five, the assignment here is given from God to the man of dust and not directly to his helper. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2 will emphasize this creational order and purpose so that whoever comes first should not be proud and exploitative, but for the purpose of the work that God wants him to do. The assignment comes with the burden of responsibility, initiative and leadership for the man of dust, as much as it comes with the burden of help, care and joyful submission for his helper. More about that next week. Okay, so what exactly is the pre-fall work of Genesis 2? How do we understand this verse, working and keeping the garden? Well, actually, the man is to work the ground as God did. Work to plant the garden, make the ground fruitful, cooperate with natural processes, bring order out of disorder, bring fruitfulness out of emptiness, and then God's garden must be kept, protected and guarded so that no enemy or usurper 
can spoil it. So we must connect this work of working and keeping the garden to the assignment earlier given in Genesis 1. There, God's image bearers are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, which means to fill this earth with the image of God. Genesis 1 talks about man and woman as God's royal image bearers, expanding His image across creation. And in Genesis 2, they are God's priests, gardening and guarding God's dwelling place. Habakkuk 2 and Isaiah 9 speak of how the knowledge of God's glory is going to fill the earth just like how we have got waters all over the sea. There's no such thing as a sea with no water. There's no such thing as this earth without the glory of its maker spreading all over it. But in, but in Isaiah 11.9, we actually see that the knowledge of the Lord's glory will lead to peace. No hurting or destroying of life, just like Eden. Well, ultimately, this description of, of how God's glory is to go all over the earth is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, the image bearer, the ultimate image bearer of the invisible God, when he comes, dying for sinners and rising to new life, he commands his disciples to tell the world about how they can know God through him. Making disciples of all the nations and teaching them all the knowledge of God that he has revealed to them. So the ultimate sense of this garden work is ultimately in the work of the gospel. Recently, someone asked me about uh, the strategic plan and vision that the elders have for the church. What's our ultimate goal? And the reply was, well, we actually have a mission statement. We have a vision statement. And it is to make disciples, to help others follow Jesus. We want to fill the world with the knowledge of our Savior so that the world will know His glory and it will go out across all the earth. Our mission is to do just that. So all of our budgets, our processes, training, teaching, organization is for this work. Our giving, our fundraising, the brothers at the back working on the sound, all of this ultimately is for this purpose. We want to dig into the soil of people's lives, plant the Word of God as we read the Bible with them. Pray for God's Spirit to irrigate and water their souls, leading them to repentance and faith so that they will bear fruit. We'll set up trellises to protect each other when we feel that we are falling over in weakness. And we want to protect one another from the poison and pests of false teaching. There's plenty of gospel gardening that we need to do. But there's also a physical dimension to the command to work and keep the garden. The Bible has a positive, affirming vision for day-to-day -day vocational work. We get this from how God is a working gardener, and the commands He gives are exactly that. They are to, be, uh, they are to do this vocational work of tending the garden as a part of providence and how, God, and how man, uh, on a daily basis, will create value in that garden through fruitfulness, bringing order and structure. And in so doing, his work will serve his neighbor and do his neighbor good, 
feeding others, creating beauty, and in cooperation with the rain and sun of God's providence, that day-to-day work will literally grow a garden. Proverbs 12, 11 fleshes out how we could think about vocational work as a part of God's work in providence. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Being productive in our work feeds others and is helpful while being idle and spending time on worthless pursuits is folly. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and ask God to give us daily bread, could not God answer that prayer by using the work of another to feed you with bread? Well, that's exactly what Martin Luther argued. And he comments on this line in the prayer. And he writes this, What else is all of our work to God in the fields, the garden, the city, the house, in war or in government, but like a child's performance by which he wants to give his gifts in the field, at home and everywhere else. These are the masks of God behind which God wants us to remain concealed and do all things. I think this is very clarifying to think of work this way. Whether we are employed or retired, your efforts, projects, initiatives and activities every day should glorify God as we do good to others as a part of His blessed providence. Some economists suggest that one reason why so many are unhappy at work is that modern consumption culture has exceeded production culture, meaning we consume and consume and consume, and we've lost the joy of producing or making or creating value for others. And I think that makes a lot of sense. If we are cooking up a meal for our neighbor, or managing a project for our company, or coaching the child of a friend, we are part of God's providence as we produce and create value that blesses others, and it brings us satisfaction. And that's why the Apostle Paul will say in Colossians 3, to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We are not to be slack or lazy or idle, Neither are we to pursue the praise of men or work for their respect. This will keep us from burnout and overwork if we offer our vocational work to the Lord in service of our neighbor. I don't get to preach too often, but one of the great joys of being a a lay elder serving alongside the full-time pastors is that we have this opportunity to work together And we remind the congregation together that we serve the Lord in gospel work and vocational work. Yes, we bring the gospel to friends and neighbors and teach the Bible. But we also glorify God in how we write emails, do PowerPoint, and are are faithful to our jobs. Uh, My wife is a physiotherapist, and uh, she once received a card from a child which had a photo of her in the card and it had a caption underneath. And the caption I love, I love a lot. It says, this is Rachel Wong. She helps people with pain. 
we reminded, I was reminded in that little card uh, that medical workers fight the effects of the fall every day, pushing back on disease, sickness, and pain. And they enhance the quality of life. That's work that we should offer up to God. And it's true also if you're a banker, or if you are an accountant, or if you serve in, in, in retail, offer your work up to God. Well, finally, in our passage, God commands the man with a word of provision and prohibition in the course of his work. So as he works, he will have what he needs, another reminder of how providence works. God gives food for man to work, and he gives man to work to produce food, and so on. But the prohibition here, to not eat of the one tree, the man must observe strictly. Now again, we don't know what this tree was and how it had the knowledge of good and evil. Some say it, had, it gives the consumer a divine awareness of righteousness and sin. Others say that the act of disobedience brings the knowledge of experience. We do not know. All we know it is that it was God's command for prohibition and came with the assurance of death. The very first time we see death mentioned in the Bible, death for sin and disobedience were foreign to Eden. They were not part of God's design. Well, you might be struggling with why God put the tree at all, why he put the tree there at all, if it was going to come with prohibition. So I've uh, dug into some history but uh, James 1, 13, 15 must be our first answer. No one should say that God tempts us. That must be our first answer. God is not the author of evil. He tempts no one. The man had plenty of fruit to be satisfied with, not to mention he had God himself. So if we ask in the first place questions, we must avoid being arrogant as to think that the question will justify our sin. It is funny and sad that we think by trying to implicate God and soil his hands, no one will notice that our hands are steeped with sin. But uh, digging into history, the 17th century theologian Francis Turretin has offered the best response to the question I could find. So I've paraphrased his five reasons. Why did God put the tree there? Number one. It defined our relationship to God. Turretin writes that God might clearly show himself as the authoritative Lord of men through a decree, and man, a servant of God, should obey and submit to him. Second, placing the tree there defined what true goodness is. It teaches men that seeking and serving God above all things was the truest and highest good not satisfying himself through material consumption. Third, it defines true joy. By forbidding something so good and desirable, God shows that man's happiness does not come from enjoying earthly things, or God would have allowed it. Fourth, it defines what evil was. By showing sin more conspicuously, Turretin says, the concealed ulcer of sin would be dragged into the light and that the virtue of obedience would be clearly seen if there was one able to resist that temptation. 
Finally, it defines our decision. It demonstrates man's ability to obey or disobey. Well, we have to wait a few weeks to hear why everything went wrong and how men and women lost Eden's paradise because of sin and their failure to work and keep the garden. But this is not the last time that we hear of Eden and paradise lost. Isaiah 51 verse 3, The Lord comforts Eden. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Friends, the unfolding Bible story is that, is that God does not stop His work that achieves His purposes because God is a working God. He only rests when His good work is done. So what does He do after the world is broken and we've lost paradise? What does He do about a broken world? He sends no philosopher. He sends no economist. He sends us one who fixes broken things. John 5, Jesus Christ will teach that as the Father is working until now in redemption, Jesus works in his earthly ministry. As a vocational carpenter, he built and repaired and made useful furniture and items out of timber and wood to do his neighbor's good. But his true work was not carpentry. John 5.21 says, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And the greater works His Father shows Him for our marveling and worship. What, what greater work is God doing? As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom He wills. Yahweh Elohim, who breathes life into the man of dust, has greater work, breathing new life, raising the dead, causing us to live through His Son. His final work was not repairing wood to serve others. It was to repair the universe by dying on the wooden cross. So if someone is out there watching who is not a Christian, friends, the Bible's story as you move from left to right is that this is how we returned to Eden through God's working Son, who bore the punishment of judgment for us when we rebelled against God's prohibition. And He rises to new life with power and authority to give life to dead men. And with His voice, in the word of the gospel, we can come alive again and live in that fruitfulness of life and work and rest. Well, for Christians, many of us have some kind of vocational work. It may not be full-time. It may not be uh, something that the economy rewards. But your work, vocationally, should be a part of God's providence to your neighbor. Serve them through work. Do it well for God's glory. We also, of course, have the work of the gospel that we need to get serious about as we expand and deepen the knowledge of Christ, our Savior. We need to tend this garden temple that is now the church. We need to keep it and guard it from false teaching. We are restored to Christ, and we can work and enjoy our work just as it was in the garden, through Him. And the rest of the world really wants to know how to do this. 
The rest of the world really wants to know the purpose of life, the purpose of work. They want to know how to solve overwork, low productivity, l- achieving life, a work-life balance. Uh, and if only they knew that God was working to save and to rescue. And who is going to tell them about this life? Has the Lord laid upon your heart today how you need to rethink your vocational work or your gospel work or indeed your relationship with Him? Let us pray. Father, as we read this scripture, we kneel before you and offer you the work of our hands. We offer you the skills, the needs, and the opportunities that you give us by your grace. Forgive us when our labors become idols in themselves and when we are stumbled by pride and greed. May Christ, our great working Savior, complete his work within us and order our steps to seek first your kingdom in every small and great task. In Jesus' name, amen.